but we are going to talk about what we just read and what that means for us today. And so I'd encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a very well-known Easter passage. In fact, it's the passage that I probably have taught more than any other passage ever. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. And as we've said earlier, this day is literally, it memorializes and commemorates the greatest event that's ever happened in history. But today we want to make sure that we understand the full message of this good news and what had happened. When I talk to people, and I talk to them about the gospel in particular, the good news of Jesus Christ, I tend to hear this. I tend to hear, God is all-powerful, and he died for my sins, which is absolutely true and is absolutely incomplete. Because so many times, without meaning to, we leave Jesus in the grave with the way we explain the gospel, we leave Jesus in the grave in the way that we talk about him, and we leave Jesus in the grave in the way that we live. Because if all Jesus did was die on a cross, we actually can't call him Lord. We can't call him Master. We can't call him Messiah because he would, at that point, just be a martyr. And if we're honest, if all Jesus did was die on a cross, then he is a liar. Because he claimed he wasn't going to stay in that grave. In fact, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, talked about the risen one. They talked about the one whose body would not see decay. And for thousands of years, these Jewish people, not just in nationality, but in faith, religion, adhered to the Old Testament that actually talked about Jesus. But ever since I started to hear about the faith, ever since I, as a young man, would hear about Christianity and religion, it seemed that this idea of the resurrection was hidden from the way people would describe Christianity to me. And it was hidden from those who would attempt to defend the faith or prophetize or evangelize in general. Many of you know this if you've met me before or you've heard me teach, but I grew up an atheist. I grew up very angry towards the idea of God because my mom died when I was eight. My parents were divorced when I was 11 months old. My mom kidnapped me. And so I had all these things that happened to me when I was young. And the idea of a loving God didn't seem to make sense to me. Because if he was all-powerful, if God was real, I hated him. And I refused to acknowledge him because I thought, that'll teach him, right? But one day, I was challenged by a Christian who asked me what I believed the Christian faith was. And to be totally honest, my response to him as a 20-year-old was pretty weak. I'll get it. (laughs) He is risen. And honestly, my answer was pretty weak as I assumed a lot about the faith, and I didn't realize that I didn't actually have an explanation that went further than just trying to clean oneself up. That I thought that Christianity was just about trying not to do bad things while attending church services that, to be totally honest, seemed kind of boring and seemed kind of like a waste of time. So that's the context in which the preacher today comes from. I was a pretty antagonistic and angry atheist growing up fighting against the idea of a sovereign God, but this friend said very, very clearly to me what Christianity was based on, that it was built on a single event in history that it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all untrue. 
And I need you to hear that. So if you come into this place today and you're a skeptic, I want you to know if you want to get us Christians, us silly people, you have to argue with the resurrection. And we don't put on our Sunday best. We don't come today and probably go out to nice lunches after this because we hope that this is true. The fact is that Christianity is built on a truth that supersedes all of our understanding at the end of the day. Because the fact that he would die for you and I really doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Why would he do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? But not only that, his resurrection from the dead actually is verification that his death mattered in the first place. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus did rise from the dead, nothing else matters. It's all about him and what he accomplished through the resurrection. So my hope today is to explain the evidence, to give an explanation, and my hope is that for you, like it did for me one day, that there's a light bulb moment if you don't have a relationship with the Lord. And if you do, and maybe you grew up in the church, and maybe the resurrection was never something you ever struggled with, you just believed it by faith, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to just believe it by faith, there's evidence to prove that the resurrection actually happened. Um, if you got invited by a family member or a friend and you're not a believer, I want you to know they want you to become a believer. Just putting that out there, just so you know. So they're probably going to ask you after this, so what did you think? Did it speak to you? You want to become a Christian? No, they probably won't ask you that. <laughs> but see, when we want people to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus. We're not talking about someone that would just clean themselves up or become a little bit more religious or come and give an hour and 15 minutes of their time once a week. We're talking about someone that would submit to Jesus and what he says and his authority. So please turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've got one of our blue Bibles and you couldn't figure out where it was, it's page 1116. It's right after the book of Romans, and it's right before the book of 2 Corinthians. And this book, 1 Corinthians, was a letter written by a guy named Paul, and it was written uh, who, by Paul, who was originally a Pharisee. He was originally a teacher of the law. He was someone who not only was Jewish in nationality, but in faith, in religion. And not only that, but he was a top-tier Pharisee. He was someone that adhered to the law and memorized the Old Testament and could explain it to other people better than most. Paul not only was a Pharisee, but when Christianity started to build some momentum, he killed Christians. So he was as opposing to the faith as possible because they started to rise up and tell people that God had come in the flesh and lived among them and lived a perfect life and then died on a cross and then rose from the dead. And Paul actually thought that these Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in the God that he believed in. So they were really the original atheists. But one day, Paul had a powerful experience, and we're not going to teach it, but in Acts chapter 9, Paul had this powerful experience while walking towards the road of Damascus where he saw a bright light and he ran into Jesus alive after Jesus had died. You know what happened? Paul didn't just stop killing Christians. He joined them. What? Not only that, he wrote roughly two-thirds of the New Testament that we read today. But why? Here's why. Because when you run into the resurrected Jesus, you'll never be the same. 
So we believe that God spoke through Paul as he authored this letter to the church in Corinth, which this letter was written to a city of Christians who were a part of a church. So we're in the city of Santa Clara, so it wouldn't just be to Church of the Valley. It would be to First Pres Santa Clara. It would be to Resurrection Lutheran. It would be to all of these churches that preach that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ only. So we're going to be in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I actually believe that this, these eight or nine verses that we're going to study today are the core of what we believe. It's the purpose and the point to why Christianity exists. So if you come in as a skeptic, I hope you leave as a follower. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's how Paul starts in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, he wasn't talking to his blood family, he was talking to other believers. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken your stand. Paul addresses these Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith, and part of being a Christian means that you've been adopted by God the Father. It means that you've been adopted. It's not anything you did. You didn't do anything to be born in the first place, so why do you think you would do anything to be born into God's family? And yet God adopts you into his family when you trust Jesus' work on the cross and through the resurrection. And you were brought into the kingdom of God. And even to these people that had been Christians for probably a while, they had this core belief of Christianity. Paul decided to remind them. Did you catch that? Because we need to be reminded. You know why? Because we have a world that's going to attempt to distract us. It's going to attempt to exaggerate other things that aren't as important as what Paul is about to say. So Paul says, what I preach to you, which you've received and which you now take your stand on. Christians love to take stands on stuff, don't they? But unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with stuff that's just going to burn and isn't going to exist in eternity. See, the good news, the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God, his death on the cross, him doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself, it requires a response. The good news, the gospel requires a response. And here's the thing, when it comes to Easter, so many of us come to do what we do on Easter because it's what we've always done. But here's the thing, if you don't receive the good news, if you don't allow the good news to permeate in your soul and penetrate your heart, then it's in vain, he's about to say. To ignore the gospel means to refuse the good news of Jesus. And that's where so many people are at. Well, I don't ignore it. I go to church once a year. Hmm. To ignore the gospel means to refuse the good news of Jesus. Verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if. That word is scary, church. By this gospel you are saved if. You hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Paul says that this good news provides salvation, but there's this disclaimer attached to it. Did you see it? It's that word, if. If it is not received, it doesn't work. If it is not received, it doesn't change you. If it is not received, it's not of use. It is only when the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, that he did for you, which you couldn't do for yourself, is when salvation has come to you. And the evidence that you've received this good news, he says it right here, that you hold firmly, that you are attached to, that you're tied to the good news of Christ, that it is the filter of your life. Why do you wake up in the morning? Because Christ is alive. 
Why do you love other people? Because Christ did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Why do I give in an offering? Why do I use my talents and my time for the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is who he says that he is. See, it's not about praying a prayer. It's about actually trusting Christ of his word and doing what he says. We don't have a belief problem in America. We have an obedience problem. And God is in the business of transforming those who have been found in Christ. But then he goes on and he tells the exact root to what Christianity is built on. Starting in verse 3, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according or in accordance to the scriptures. Friday night, many of us sat in this room and we celebrated Jesus. And we know it as what? What was Friday night? Good Friday. But let's be honest. It doesn't really make a lot of sense that we call it Good Friday because it's celebrating the fact that an innocent man went to a cross and died. Doesn't sound that good, does it? But there's a reason that Good Friday is so important. There's a reason that we believe that Good Friday not only happened and not only did Sunday actually verify the Good Friday took, if you will. Let me take you to one verse in Isaiah 53, in chapter 53, verse 5. Isaiah is, an, a, pro, is a prophet, and he writes this 700 years prior to Jesus being born to Mary. He's talking about the future Messiah, and he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel because Isaiah wrote about Jesus 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary. And what happened when Jesus hung on that cross and breathed his last breath and gave up his life was that the great exchange took place and Jesus is the personification of the great exchange that, we, that he got what you and I deserve because we've sinned against God. But God is so good that he gives us what Jesus deserves, which is a right relationship with God for eternity. Oh, that's good news. And that's why it's Good Friday. But if Good Friday was all we had and we didn't have Easter, we didn't have Sunday morning, then it did not take. It was in vain. Here's what he says in verse 4, that he was buried, that's Jesus, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. See, Jesus was buried, he was placed in a tomb because as he hung on that cross and he gave up his spirit, his body became lifeless. There was no breath going through his lungs. There was no blood going through his veins being pumped anymore. And then he was taken down, wrapped in cloth, and he was put in a borrowed tomb, one purchased by a rich man who placed Jesus in this tomb. And not for one instant did Joseph of Arimathea assume that he was going to get the tomb back. But on the third day, Jesus came out of that tomb victorious, didn't he? He had victory over death. It was not wishful thinking. This is not a story created over time of people playing telephone, church. This is fact. And not because many hope that it's true. Well, I hope this is true, so it must be real. But because history paints a picture that provides more evidence for this event than any other miracle in history by far. 
See, there are 13 facts that scholar and skeptics alike agree upon when it comes to the idea of the supposed resurrection. And here's the crazy thing about these 13 facts. By themselves, none of them are supernatural. And these are things that scholars who have looked into the resurrection, looked into what happened in the first century around 33 AD, agree upon. And even skeptics will adhere and say, yeah, that happened, but. And again, these 13 facts are not supernatural, any of them by themselves, but you start to put them together and they paint a beautiful picture of the fact that it takes significantly more faith to believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead than it does to believe that he did. But because we actually want to go out to brunch or we want to go out to lunch, we're not going to do 13 facts. We ain't got time. But I'm going to give you four that actually fight against every single argument against the resurrection. I just want to put my cards on the table. The arguments against the resurrection, they are stupid. Okay, I'm just letting you know. Here's the first fact that scholar and skeptic, and this isn't just based on scripture, this is based on historical documents and people that were there and people that actually weren't Christians as well. Here's what people will agree upon, that Jesus physically died by public crucifixion. Crazy. See, in order to have a resurrection, you first have to die, right? And he actually died by crucifixion. And really, the only people that argue with this are another faith that 600 years later want to claim that that their God took Jesus off of the cross, but they weren't there. And yet, history tells us that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. See, he was beaten 39 lashings. He was tore up from the floor up, and he had to carry this cross, and he couldn't even carry it, the Bible says. They had to bring in Simon of Cyrene to actually carry the cross for him. And he went to the cross and he had a nail in this wrist and a nail in this wrist and a nail through his ankles. And he hung on the cross for hours. The sky went black is what the Bible says. But then there's history that tells us that there was a great eclipse at the exact same time. Which doesn't make any sense because the moon and the sun and the earth were not in line with one another. But historical documents will say that the sky went black around the same time. And Jesus went through all of this beating, he hung on the cross, and there were Roman guards that were there to make sure that Jesus was dead. And if the Roman guards were wrong, guess what would happen to the Roman guard? Dead. So they had a bunch of reasons to make sure that this man, this person, this blasphemer, as they thought, who hung on the cross, was actually dead. So first truth, or the first fact, is that Jesus physically died by public crucifixion. Number two, the tomb Jesus was placed in was found empty. That's kind of a big deal, right? Because if he was still in the tomb, this whole idea that he had risen probably wouldn't have got out of Jerusalem, don't you think? But I need you to hear this. An empty tomb by itself proves nothing, does it? Not a thing, because if I died and you put me in a grave and then three days later you came back and I wasn't in that grave, who here is going to go, well, obviously Tim rose from the dead. (laughs) No. So then there are these arguments against the idea that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. So here's the first one, that the people went to the wrong tomb. That's my favorite, actually. Silly women. Tricks are for kids, right? Like, But the problem with that theory is that as soon as people started to proclaim that Jesus had risen, don't you think the government would have gone, no, stupid, he's in this one, and then produced the body. So maybe the authorities stole the body 
in fear that people would attempt to tamper with this tomb. And again, it wouldn't make sense that people would proclaim that Jesus had risen if someone had just moved the body. Because at some point, they would have produced the body. And why would the government move the body and then really not want people to say that he had risen? They would have shown them, no, 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 we have him. But here's the most used argument that's also the least likely, but let's use it anyway, that the disciples stole the body. This is my favorite apologetic, to be honest. Let's look at this line of thinking. These disciples, these disciplined pupils, these people that walked with Jesus for over three years were walking with Jesus. They were following him. They were witnessing him perform miracles. He even raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. But then over time... He wouldn't recant that he was the son of God, so they put him on a cross. And if you read the Gospels, if you read the Bible, what you see is a bunch of Jewish men who were following Jesus that one by one, almost all of them, abandoned Jesus. Well, that's not very good for the story, is it? It's not very good for the argument of the idea that Jesus was actually God. But then the argument is that they all deserted Jesus, and then three days later, they overpowered a Roman guard somehow moved a 4,000-pound rock out of the way of the tomb and took his body and hid him somewhere else and then decided to proclaim that he had risen. And when people said, if you don't recant, we're going to kill you, and they go, ha-ha, April Fools, we're not telling you that he didn't actually rise from the dead. And then they were willing to die. Here's the problem with that. Liars make terrible martyrs, don't they? See, there are other faiths where people hope that something is true because they haven't seen it. They've been convinced by some charismatic person. And they are willing to die for something they hope that is true. But here's what I know about the human condition. You will not die for something you are sure is not true. Huh. So again, an empty tomb proves nothing, but an empty tomb plus some eyewitness accounts, that starts to build a case, doesn't it? Some sightings of Jesus alive and around that starts to build some type of case that maybe, just maybe, us Christians aren't wrong. Verse 5, and then Paul says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, those are the men that were following Jesus. See, Paul, Paul starts to affirm the account that there are a bunch of eyewitnesses that had physically seen Jesus alive after he died. And he starts with Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, the one who wrote two books in the New Testament. Peter, who had done some dumb things in Scripture and did some amazing things by God's grace. And yet Peter never recants. So let's, let's get away from the Bible. Let's just go to Roman history. How did Peter die? Many of us know this, that he died on a cross, but he didn't die right side up. He died upside down because right after his wife had been tortured and crucified. Yeah, Peter was married, by the way. Right after his wife was crucified for not recanting that Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter also decided, I'm not going to recant either. And went, and as they went to put him on the cross, he said, flip me upside down because I am not worthy to be hung like my Lord. And it wasn't just Peter, it was 11 other men who God had appointed to his service to preach and proclaim the message that death had not been defeated. You know, Watergate might have been probable if people hadn't recanted. That's for like 30 of us. Some of you were like, what's Watergate? Never mind. But see, these men never recanted. You know why? 
not because someone else convinced them, but because they saw with their own eyes, they touched and saw Jesus alive after he had died. Verse six, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's not a really long nap. That means that they had died. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture because Paul makes the most outlandish and risky claim if he's lying. I want you guys to think about this. He says that there were 500 people all at once that saw the same thing, and he basically says they're still alive, so go ask them. If you're going to make up a lie, you're not going to say that because you know that people will start to ask and there will start to be a case built against your lying. But some will argue, well, maybe all these 500 people had a hallucination. Um, what? See, hallucinations are like dreams. You can't give them to someone. I can't be sleeping and dreaming about Hawaii and then wake up real quick, tap my wife on her shoulder and say, Aaron, jump into my dream, free vacation. Let's do this. <laughs> in fact, in today's court of law, if two people physically saw a murder, if they physically saw a murder, they saw someone else do it, and two people could testify to it, there's a really good chance that person's going to jail, even if Johnny Cochran's there. Sorry. And yet, 500 people witnessed the same thing at the same time. You know what's crazy about that? That if 500 people all saw the same thing at the same time, that people would actually argue that it was hallucination. It's not a hallucination. If 500 people saw the same thing at the same time, it's an event. So the reason this is such an outlandish claim is he says this in a context where people could check his work. And they could go ask, hey, did you really see this? Do you know that these Jews that were following Jesus, that had given up the faith that they had had before, where they were following Yahweh, but they realized that Jesus actually was part of who God is, that he is God, that they were losing their families, that people thought they were ridiculous for believing that a man had, is God, and yet they were willing to give up everything. You know why? Because they physically saw Jesus alive after he died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, it's my favorite, then to all the apostles, for me, this is the most compelling fact in all of Scripture because the Bible says that James and most of Jesus' family did not believe that he was God. And yet we see James writing a book called James, and he becomes the, the pastor of the new, of the new the Jerusalem church. So real quick question. How many of you have siblings? How hard would it be for your sibling to convince you that they were God? Yeah, and yet James was willing to die a martyr's death because he knew that his older brother was God. Mind-blowing. Verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Lastly, he appeared to Paul, one who was an enemy against the message that God had actually clothed himself with skin and walked among them. So here's what we know, that Jesus died by public crucifixion. Scholar and skeptic will agree that the tomb that Jesus was placed in was found empty. Scholar and skeptic will agree. Many believe that they saw Jesus alive after he died, including James, Jesus' half-brother, and Paul an opponent against Christianity. And then lastly, what scholar and skeptic will agree upon, 
that the origin of Christianity started and has been sustained by the message of the resurrection. Not because we claim it, not because we hope that it's true, but from the early church, people were claiming that they saw Jesus alive after he died, and here's the thing about the resurrection, it changes everything. We don't have a placebo faith, we don't have a blind faith, we have a faith that is built on a resurrected Savior, and I can give you more facts, we can go back and forth, and we can do this all day, but hear me, you know why I know Jesus is alive? Because all morning I was meeting with him and talking with him and begging him to revive hearts and the people that come into this property and throughout the entire Bay Area as the gospel is proclaimed at churches. See, this was not a faith that was, had a story that was added to it over time. This wasn't, oh, the idea of a resurrected Jesus, that's a good idea, let's just add that in. No, this was something that from the beginning, the Christianity, the church started to blow up. Why? Because they physically saw Jesus alive after he died. And this is what Christianity was started by. This is why Christianity exists today. It's not because we have nice buildings. It's not because we have nice traditions. It's not because we have good music or good preaching. It's because Jesus is alive, church. And I don't want us to miss that. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15 was the verse that hijacked my eternity. As an atheist, as a 19-year-old sitting in a library, I read this verse in the Bible and it screwed everything up for me. Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And I just thought in a real logical sense, I thought, man, if I'm going to try to get you to believe something, possibly a book, and what the book says, I'm not going to tell you how to prove that the book isn't true in the book. And yet, what did Jesus do? He gave us a historical argument of the most important event in history. And Paul tells us, if Christ has not been raised, this property might as well be Santana Row East. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, your faith is placebo. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. And you might as well be pitied more than all people because you're wasting your time. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there's hope, church. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means that we can have a relationship with him for eternity. Worship team, why don't you come on up? People always ask me, well, how can you believe that the Bible's true? I'll tell you why I don't believe the Bible's true. I, I do believe it's true, but I'll tell you the argument that I don't use. Because the Bible says it's true. It's a stupid argument. But here's what I know. Based on history, Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, God exists. And if God exists and Jesus is God, and this book tells us why he rose from the dead, I'm going to trust it. Because here's the thing, I don't want to get dead. Anyone else? And yet, if Jesus can rise from the dead and say, hey, I don't just know the way, I am the way, I'm with him. So as George makes me sound spiritual, hear this. It really has something to do with, do you think you have anything to be saved from? Because at the end of the day, we're going to believe what we want to believe. Do you think that you've actually committed cosmic treason against a holy and perfect God? Do you think you've actually sinned against him? Or are you still too proud that you think you can 
work your way to God, even though he worked his way to you. So again, you'll believe what you want to believe, no matter what the evidence points to. But here's my hope, that God wrecks and detours your life. Because when he wrecked my life, he changed my trajectory for eternity, and he gave me a purpose, and he made me realize that even though my mom died when I was young, God loved me, and he loves you. So I just want us to pray, and if you've never prayed before, this is an opportunity for you to get real with God. Like I said earlier, we're going to receive the offering at the end of the service, so no reason to come up, but there are cards in front of you. Those cards in front of you are your opportunity to communicate with us and let us know what you need prayer for. But maybe this morning, Easter Sunday, 2018, you've decided, yep, the resurrection's true. And I want to follow this God who did for me what I could not do for myself. So would you just close your eyes? Would you just bow your heads? And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to God and tell him, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to give you my life, and I want to follow you with all that I am. I believe that you lived, I believe that you died, I believe that you rose again, and because of that, I trust you, Jesus, and I turn from my sin. I'm heartbroken over my sin. I'm repenting, and I'm in love with the Son, God, so allow him to lead me from this day forward. If that's you this morning, I'd encourage you to fill out a card and drop it in the offering box as you leave. If you want to know more about who this Jesus is, just put that on the card. If you've made a commitment today, here's what I guarantee will happen. If you truly made a commitment to Jesus, your life will never be the same. So would you tell somebody of that commitment?